Our scripture this morning comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. So good morning. That's good to see you. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here, <coughs> excuse me, at Redeemer City. Um, it's, it's so good to, to be with you this morning. I'm excited about this text. Uh, you, may, you may not be aware, uh, I, I got back about 1 o'clock in the morning this morning from uh, spending the last week in Israel. So about 72 hours ago, we were literally uh, at the garden tomb. Uh, and so we, we joked and said it would have been enough for the sermon outlined to be like this this morning. Point number one, I was there just a couple days ago. Point number two, he's not there. Point number three, let's go live like that's true. But I'm glad to be able to uh, come to this text with you this morning. We've been working through this letter that Paul's written to the Roman Christians. Uh, and if you were here last week, we've made our way through to the chapter 8. And uh, Tony Ellswick was with us last week, I believe. And uh, he's, he did the first few, chap first few verses of chapter 8. We're skipping ahead uh, for the sake of the theme of Easter this morning to these last verses. And then we're going to come back in the next few weeks and do all the stuff in between. But what a wonderful passage of Scripture for us to meditate on together this morning. It really is a, a, you know, an Easter text. And we'll see how that's the case in just a little bit. Let me say this to you by way of introduction this morning. The core of Christianity is that Jesus died for our sins and was raised on the third day, which is what we celebrate today. Amen? If Jesus died but was not raised, there is no gospel. The cross, the gospel is not the cross. The gospel is that Jesus died for sins and was raised by the power of the Father on the third day and we celebrate that today on Easter, which means Christianity is death and resurrection for us too, or better, death than resurrection. If we are those who Paul's been laboring to tell us uh, in this letter, those who are united to Christ by faith, then we are united to him in his death, but we're also united to him in his resurrection. And therefore, for us, the shape of our lives, if you claim to follow him, is, is that very thing, that there is death and then resurrection, which means there's no death without the promise of resurrection for a Christian, but also there is no resurrection without death first. The implication is important as we focus our attention on this phrase, if you look with me in the text in verse 37, where Paul says, in all of these things, 
We are more than conquerors. That's really what we want to laser focus our attention on this morning. What does Paul mean when he says, uh, and when this text teaches, that really what Christianity is, is that we have this work of God on our behalf that makes us such that he describes us here as more than conquerors. I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we get an easy life. I know that because of what the text says. Look again. Paul says we are more than conquerors in all of these things. Well, what things? And so we're forced to look back in the verses that precede that verse, verse 35 and 36. And there you see the things he names. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, death. It's a pretty heavy list. There's a certain shape to life in a fallen world. And the hope of Easter is not an escape from that kind of life, but victory over it. In fact, following Jesus, it's one of the things I want to be clear to say this morning, following Jesus means more, not less, of the hard stuff that we're promised here in this text. You choose a way of life, if you're a follower of Christ, that brings you more of the stuff that Paul lists here in Romans 8. More vulnerability with people, right? And so more heartbreak, more conflict because love is confrontational, more danger because you, you live by faith and, and not by sight. So that's what it means to take up your cross and follow him. The victory isn't that you avoid all of that. The victory that Paul speaks of here is that if you become a Christian, it means there'll be no more cross for you. The, the victory is that in taking up your cross and following after him, by the Spirit, you possess a supernatural ability to endure and not lose heart. Because if your faith is in Jesus, the promise to you is that every death follows with a resurrection. And so the Second Corinthians passage, I think, is helpful, which we read a minute ago. Jonathan read it to us, where Paul says, if you look there again, in verses 8 and 9, he says, uh, we, he's describing what life was like for these early Christian people. And he says, we were afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken and struck down but not destroyed. He's, he's making these contrasts here. Uh, we have affliction and hardship in common, every single one of us in the room. If you live in this world, as broken as it is, that will be your experience to one degree or another. But what separates Christians, as Jonathan has said, is their ability to face the hard stuff that we're assured is going to be a part of our experience but you, you, you're able to face it with a, a different kind of internal metal. You can take the punches that life brings and not be knocked out. Or if you get knocked down, you get back up and you keep going. You keep showing up. What makes the difference? Well, this is what the text tells us. In all these things, we're more than conquerors. Look there again. Through him who loved us for, and here Paul is the read. So why the reason we're conquerors, as Paul says, is for I'm sure that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, if you want to boil down what Easter means for Christians, that's it. That right there. That nothing, not even death, can separate us from God's love. That Easter means whatever you're going through right now, no matter how hard, no matter how painful it is, if your faith is in Christ, it will turn to victory. Not because you've Excuse me, let me say that again. If your faith is in Christ, whatever you're going through, uh, it will be turned to victory simply because you've not stopped being loved in whatever thing it is you're having to walk through. When you realize that, 
then the hard stuff actually drives you deeper into an experience of God's love. And that's, that's the more than conqueror. That, that, that's that phrase that Paul's talking about here. That's what this text is about. It's about living as if you're loved. And if I could summarize really what the, the, the implication of Easter is for every single one of us, it means that we go throughout all the days of our lives living as if we're loved. And that's what I want to talk about because I think it's what the text talks about as well. And so I want to just look at the text and, and recognize, I told you I got in at 1 o'clock this morning, so jet lag's a real thing. I told the first service I was operating at about 25% mental capacity, which means I'm probably at like 15 now. So just yell at me if I don't make sense somewhere. We're going to get through this together, though. But I want you to see, living like you're loved, I want to just take these three parts. How? How is it you can live like you're loved? Number two, why? Why, against everything Paul, Paul says will be true of our lives here, why is it that we could still live as if we're loved? And then thirdly, what it would look like in our lives if we became people that really lived as if Easter was true, as if God really did love us, as if all that Paul says here really is the truth. Okay? Those three things, they're the three points in the outline that I gave you in your uh, worship folder. So let's just, let's walk through this together, okay? First, how do you live like you're loved? Now, before I answer the question, let me outline the problem. And, and the problem is really a problem of courage. That's really what we're, we're talking about this morning is that, that, that we really, we have a, uh, we really have a, a uh, lack of courage. We, we have a crisis of morality we're facing in our culture we all know this, but really it's a crisis of courage. C.S. Lewis said that courage is not just uh, one of the virtues, it's every virtue at the testing point. And what he meant by that is, he, he meant that if you don't have courage, then you won't ever get to the point where the other virtues actually start to take place, you know, where you, where you learn the lessons that you need to learn in order to, to get the other virtues in your life. If you don't have courage, you won't get any of the other virtues. You won't become a person who's humble or patient or a person of prayer because it takes courage to actually push through to the place where you start to become that kind of person. Lewis also said that there are really two choices in life, and this has always been one of the most helpful things for me, and I think it's, ap it's applicable, applicable here as well. He said, you can live in one of, two, one of two realities. He said, you can live with a broken heart, because that just is what, I mean, you read this text and you, and you understand why, right? Paul says there's some things that are going to happen, and if you really live in this world, fallen as it is, part of what your experience is going to be is a broken heart. If you keep showing up and keep loving, don't even give your, don't even give your heart to an animal, Lewis said, because they'll break your heart too. Just lock it away. So you, you can either live with a broken heart or you lock your heart away in a coffin of selfishness, as he put it, and the result is that you, you develop an unbreakable heart. And those are really the only two choices. If you keep showing up, it'll mean a broken heart, and that's the hardest thing. But if you instead, because it hurts too much, you try to protect yourself, you lock it up in a coffin of selfishness, it'll eventually become unbreakable, and that's the scary thing. That's way worse. But those are the only two choices, except that there's something different uh, that the gospel makes possible for us. That you have to choose the hardest thing. You have to choose to continue and engage. You have to choose to continue to show up for life as scary and dangerous as it can be, as Paul describes here. But to do that, you need courage. Because here, here's what is uniquely, I think, a Christian stance in life, is that a Christian is a person who, who refuses to avoid the hard parts of life, but also refuses to just go through life shutting their heart down. Does that make sense? So on the one hand, you just refuse to, uh, you refuse to avoid the hard parts of life. You know that it's going to be hard, and it's going to be harder because you're following Jesus. But you also refuse to allow your heart to just become shut down. So you have to learn how to endure through hardship and even brokenheartedness and, and keep your heart and keep your courage. Paul says we don't lose heart. 
That's the only way to make it in this life. And so the question becomes then, how do you keep your heart? If that's what you need to be able to do, how, how do you do that? And that's what the text really helps us with because you do what you see Paul doing in the text. Paul is addressing, he's been addressing us. He turns a corner in verse 31 and, and following and he begins to talk to his heart. He's talking his heart into being loved. You can listen to your heart or you can talk to your heart. But look what he says. He says, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? Now, just before this, Paul's talking about what life feels like in a fallen world. Verses 18 through 27, he says it's, it's full of groaning and um, meaninglessness. The, the world is characterized by these things. It's hard. And so what you have to do is, in the middle of that hard reality, you have to speak into the, that experience. You have to be proactive. Because when hard things come into your life, they speak to your heart. Sadness, as you experience it, speaks to your heart. Disappointment, it speaks to your heart. Loss and pain, these things speak, they speak to your heart. And they say things like, there's no one who loves you. You're all alone. This whole thing is up to you. And, and we both, you know, and you're, you're a pretty big screw-up, so you're probably going to mess all of it up. Anybody ever experienced that? This is, what, this is what happens. These external trials trigger an internal sense that we're all afraid of that, that, that really starts to work on us on the inside. Notice the language of, of verse 33 and the verse 34. Paul talks about charges. Who will bring charges? Who will condemn? Verse 34. So we, he, he's tapping into something that's very true and very powerful. That there, we experience external difficulties, trials, struggles, and a lot of times... Uh, they trigger an internal sense that God must not be for us. He really must be against us. And the argument that Paul's making is that in Christ, nothing can separate us from God's love. But that also spells out the problem that if you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, then I have to be, I have to love you and be a friend to you and say, if your faith is not in Christ, then God is not for you. You are his enemy. You have declared war against him, and because he's a God of justice, which means that he hates everything that destroys what he loves, he is set against you. And the reality is, is that's not just objective fact. It's also something that you feel, that you experience subjectively on the insides. Your sin, our sin, has alienated us from God. We're separated from his love naturally in our sin. And so when you think about God, if you're not a Christian, a lot of times... There's, there's a certain amount of dread, not comfort, not warmth, definitely not love. It's a traumatic psychological experience, the Bible says. And even when you're converted, the problem is it can stick with you. It's something you have to, you have to really fight against as a Christian. You don't just get over this. It's something that you have to come back to over and over again. I'll tell you a story recently in my experience. I told you this past week uh, we, were in, we were in Israel. So on, on um, Maundy Thursday, this past Thursday, just a few days ago, we were at the Garden Tomb, which is the traditional Protestant site of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Uh, it's just all right there in the same spot. And we, we had a communion service there. So I want, I want you to get the picture, okay? It's Monday, Thursday. I'm in Israel. I've just walked in and out of the tomb where they, they think Jesus was buried and was raised. We're doing communion in this place. Tim Rice, who 
is the pastor of Trinity in Lakeland who uh, we planted our church out of. He stood to share the gospel, and it was, I mean, if you don't know him, he's an amazingly gifted speaker. I mean, it was so stirring. I mean, it flowed out of him so naturally. It was a beautiful thing, and i got to be honest with you. All of a sudden, I'm in the back of the crowd, and I realize that as Tim's talking, he's just doing all these things, and he's just going for it. And what's happening to me as I listen to him is I'm not caught up in the wonder of what he's saying. I'm caught up in full, I begin to be full of self-doubt and self-loathing. And by the time he got done with his gospel presentation, I was ready to quit the ministry. I'm not kidding. I'm, I'm seriously not kidding. I thought I need to go home and resign and tell all my people to go listen to him preach in Lakeland because he's just so much better than I am. Uh, I, okay, I'm in the garden tomb on Monday, Thursday, doing communion. And I have to fight to not miss the moment because my heart is so loudly condemning me. And I don't say that so that you'll handle me with care. That really annoys me. Don't do that, please. I'm a big boy. I can handle it, okay? I say that to just, to just say I think that's an experience that's not just true of me. It's true of a lot of us. And if it can happen in moments like that, then it happens just in little moments all throughout our days this inner sense of condemnation that can be so profound and severe. And what that teaches us, I think, and what the text teaches us is that the sin underneath every sin is discouragement. The sin underneath every sin is discouragement. Think about the word, discouragement. What's that mean? To lack courage or to have your courage taken away, either by the internal, you know, condemning voice that you hear on the inside or by just the callousness of someone else in your life, the sin underneath every sin is discouragement, a lack of courage. Your sinful heart, a lot of the time, talks you out of being loved. And so what do you do? You got to talk back. You got you to have things to say, right? What shall we say to these things, Paul says? Something's got to come out of you. That's the only way to get out of this. And so notice, I want you to see, Paul's not making statements. Do you notice that? There's a lot of, he's posing questions. He's, he's doing logic with his own heart to wrestle and to reason his own heart towards the truth of, of the love of God for him in Christ. Psalm 42 is a great example of this. Uh, in Psalm 42, the psalmist is overcome with sadness. He is wallowing, to be honest, if you've, you know, if you've ever been there, if you know someone who's there. And he says this, he says, my tears have been my food. Think about that. He's, he's in full-blown depression, the psalmist is. And he says, my tears have been my food. Now listen to this next part. He says, my tears say to me, where is your God? Now think about that. My tears have been my food. They say to me, where is your God? His tears are speaking to him. Do you see his tears, his sadness, his, this crushing grief that he's experiencing him is causing unbelief in his heart. It's saying things about him. God's not real. You can't count on him. He, he's not for you. You should, you should just be done with him. Where is he anyway? Why is he letting this happen to you? His tears are speaking to him. His sadness is talking him out of being loved. And then something happens. It's marvelous. As the psalm goes on, he turns it around. And at some point, he stops listening to his heart as it repeats what the tears have been saying. And what he does is he starts talking to his heart instead. So you, you hear the psalmist say, you know what? Why so downcast, O my soul? Why are you acting this way, O heart within me? Why are you so downcast? Why are you in turmoil within me? Put your hope in God. You see, he turns on himself. He, he takes hold of himself, as Lloyd-Jones would say. He activates his faith. And that's what you got to do too. You got to do what the text is doing. 
taking the truth and, and massaging it into your heart to do away with the unbelief and the despair and the sadness. And that, that teaches us something really important, that information is not enough. Doctrine is not enough. It's important, but doctrine is not enough if it never touches your heart. You don't grow as a Christian by getting more information. You grow by getting the simple truth of the gospel deeper and deeper into your heart. Which is why we constantly go back to the gospel. That's the spirit's job, by the way, but there's stuff that you can do too. You gotta be proactive about this. You gotta do what you see Paul doing here. You fight to live like you're loved by, by, by bringing the truth, of the simple truth of the gospel and driving it deeper and deeper into your heart. Well, then secondly, then what is the simple truth of the gospel? What is the content that you have to keep speaking to your heart? Or why can you live love no matter what's going on in your life? And now here's where really there's just so much here we can't possibly get. We could spend two months just in these seven or eight verses because there's so much content, but I want to boil it down to two things, okay? And so if you want to talk about what is this gospel content uh, that we celebrate this morning, we're all here dressed up and looking so nice. What is it that really is being revealed to us here? And it's these two things, I think. And the first one is, if your faith is in Jesus, if your faith is in Jesus, God has decidedly set his love on you, okay? By the way, if you're not, you got, a lot of you guys are, are here and we're glad you're here for the first time, but I have to train. That's an amen moment in case you hadn't, right? You guys keep missing them. I'm gonna get there with you one day. I, I, hope, I hope that when you hear that, something, something happens here, like in this general vicinity right here. If your faith is in Jesus, God has decidedly set his love on you. That is the truth. That is the truth. You can be sure of that. Verse 38, Paul says, for I am sure. I like the translation, for I am persuaded. Paul was persuaded that because of his faith in Jesus, God had decidedly set his love on him. And then he makes these statements. He goes throughout all this text making all of these statements that are just so marvelous that we have to kind of just rapid fire take them also. Here, here are a number of the things that Paul says. He says, I am sure, I'm absolutely persuaded, verse 31, that God is for me. And if your faith is in Jesus, you can be sure that God is for you too. Look at verse 31. You know, sometimes it feels like there's a lot against us, doesn't it? People against us, our past is against us, but not God. He is not neutral towards you. He is not undecided about you. He is not standoffish. He is certainly not against you. Now, it may not all go the way you want it to, but that does not mean that God is against you. I was listening to a sermon by uh, Ray Ortland, who's a pastor in, in Nashville this week, and he just, he brought this together so beautifully. He said something like this. This is my kind of my, my paraphrase. He said, somewhere in Beijing, China, right now, as we sit in this room, there's an intersection all the way across the world, and there's a traffic light, and it's turning from red to green, and cars are moving. And he said, if we could see reality as God sees it at this moment, that traffic pattern on the other side of the world would, you, would, you would see that somehow it is converging and is connected to the reality that you are experiencing right now ordained by God for your good. That was, that was the way I reacted to. Wow. That along with everything else in the world that is happening all over the world right now, it is all, every detail, there's a butterfly effect of traffic patterns in China for the good that God desires to do in your life. 
and it is all working together for your good. If, and if that's the world that we live in, governed by God who loves us in Christ, for you to be overlooked, for you to fall through the cracks, for your future to just go poof, God would have to go poof, and that's impossible. And so if you're a Christian, the love of God is the wind at your back. Paul says, I am persuaded. I know for certain that God is for me, and if your faith's in Christ, you can too. But the second thing he says is he says, I, I also know for certain, I'm absolutely persuaded that he has given away his greatest treasure to get me. If your faith is in Jesus, that truth sits there for you too. Verse 32, you can be sure that, that God has given away his greatest treasure to get you. If he, and if he has already given you his greatest gift in Jesus, do you think he's going to start nickel and diming you now? He's not a penny-pinching God. He's not a foot-dragging God. He does not scrimp. He is not stingy. He has emptied the treasure vault of heaven in sending Jesus. He has spared no expense. He's not holding out on you. Don't you ever dare think that. If you're a Christian, you can't ever think that God is rich in love and he is a big spender. He does not limit his love for you. He unlimits his love for you. Until it encompasses, verse 32, all things. All things fall under, the, fall under the umbrella of his love. Paul says, I'm sure. I'm absolutely convinced God's for me. He's given away his greatest treasure to get me. And then the third thing, we're just going to do this in rapid fire. He says, I'm absolutely convinced. I'm persuaded. I'm sure, verse 33, that he has chosen me. And if your faith is in Jesus, you can be sure that he's chosen you too. God knows you best. He knows you all the way to the bottom, and he loves you. You're his elect. Do you see that word there? He knows you better than anybody else. That's what that means. Uh, and it means the people who might criticize you, they don't know you. You should listen to them because there's a lot of wisdom to be gained in criticism. But the reality is that oftentimes when you face criticism from other people, it's coming from people who can't see into your heart. And so we would be wise to not listen too much to the criticisms of people who don't really know us. But also, see, this is where it comes home for me, that God knows me better than I know myself. There's a great verse in 1 John that says, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Do you know what that means? It means that you don't know yourself well enough to listen to the accusations of your own heart. You don't know yourself well enough to listen to the accusations of your own heart. You shouldn't listen when your heart starts to erupt with all these accusations and condemnation. God didn't get stuck with you. He got first dibs, and you were his choice. Your sin doesn't disqualify you. He knew all of your sins, and he still said, I want her. There's no information God doesn't have that would change his decision. He's the only person who knows you all the way to the bottom. And in truth, he sees ugly, rotten things about you that you don't even know about you, and he still put his love on you. Paul says, I know. I'm persuaded. He's for me, that he's given away his greatest possession to have me, that he eternally has loved me from before the foundation of the world, and that by sending the Lord Jesus, verse 33, he has justified me. And that's the fourth thing he says. And if your faith is in Christ too, then he has justified you too, and you can be confident of that. God's not condemning you. He doesn't sigh when he thinks about you. He has decidedly set his love on you in a legal act that cannot be reversed. The verdict is in. Isn't that good news? He has decidedly set his love on you, but there's a second thing, and that is that though he has decidedly set his love on you, it has absolutely nothing to do with you. 
nothing at all. It's, based upon, it's not based upon your performance. God is not for you as long as you don't make any mistakes. He didn't choose you because there was something about you that caught his eye. He didn't justify you on account of your good works. Our hearts see what happens even as you would come to faith and you walk as a Christian. Your heart continually goes back into this, this kind of thinking. Something bad happens to you, right? And if you're like me anyway, I, I go through a bad season and I think oh, I'm probably being punished for some mistake I've made. And then I feel I don't, can't even figure out what mistake it is I've made and it just makes me feel worse. You know, but of course, if I'm acting that way, that also means that if it's going good, it must be because I'm doing everything right. No. I want you to look and see what Paul does here. Pay careful attention. Paul poses questions. You see how he's posing questions, verse 32, verse 33, verse 34? And every time he poses a question, he answers the question not with something that has reference to him, but always he answers the question with something that has reference to what God has done. Do you notice that? Look at how he does it. He doesn't say, who is to condemn, verse 34, and then answer it. Well, you know, that, how mean. You, you really are a wonderful person. People shouldn't talk about you that way. <laughs> What's he say? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died and was raised, who is at the right hand of God. See, Christianity's gospel is not religion, and that's so important. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ already once for all, these are aorist tense verbs. This is something that's happened in the past. It doesn't say, and aren't you so glad? I am. It doesn't say, God's for you today, but we'll have to wait and see about tomorrow. It doesn't say that. The text is saying, God's love is rooted in his faithfulness and work in Christ and not in ours, and therefore it's a sure thing. He has decidedly set his love upon you on the basis of the person and work of Jesus. Therefore, how I'm doing or how life is going are not indicators of how God feels about me. How I'm doing, how life around me is going are not the indicators of how God feels about me. And that's why you can live love. Because even when life feels like it's falling apart, he doesn't love you because you always get it right. Do you believe that? He doesn't love you only when you get it right. So when you get it wrong, guess what? You're still loved. He's still for you. He's still just as committed to working all things together for your good. And what really drives this thing home to our hearts is where we have to finish this little part of the sermon. And that's just to talk about the resurrection, not just because today is Resurrection Sunday, but because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of all of this. You see that in verse 34, he hones us in on the resurrection there. The resurrection is God's vindication of Jesus' work. It is God's stamp of approval on his life and death. And that means that if Jesus is not alive, then you shouldn't worry with him at all. But if he is alive, then he is who he said he was. And everything he said is true. And everything that Paul is saying to us here is true. Paul plants the resurrection in the middle of the passage because without the resurrection, there is no gospel. Without the resurrection... We can have no confidence that any of these things are true. But the good news of today is just this. Jesus is alive. I was there 72 hours ago. He's not there. Therefore, what Paul says is true. No matter how you're feeling, no matter how life is going for you at this moment, because the tomb is empty. Now, lastly, then, 
Lastly, if you take these truths of the gospel and you drive them home to your heart as we've been talking about, and if you live as if the resurrection really is true, what happens? What happens? And let's just finish really quickly by, by looking um, at verse 37 again. Paul says, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors who loved us. Do you, do you notice that? Not just conquerors. What is it? More than conquerors. It's the word for conqueror with a prefix. The prefix is hyper, literally in the Greek. Hyper, now not like ADD conquerors, okay? That's not what that means. It means beyond conquering. It means something more than just winning. There's winning, and then there's something more than just winning. I use the illustration, I'm a Seminole fan, and so my favorite, my favorite time of my life to be a Seminole fan was in the 90s, when in the 90s, Florida State would beat half their you know, opponents, like 77 to 10 or something like that. And I know all the Gator fans are thinking, this because they play in the ACC, don't play anybody, you know, and all that stuff. It doesn't matter. It's probably true they weren't great teams, but it was also an indication they were really good. And we would go and we would relish. I mean, it didn't matter. 63 to 10, we, we cheered as loud for the touchdown that got to 70 as we did for the first one. Because there's something about watching your team just crush somebody, isn't there? Do you remember when the United States got tired of losing to the world in basketball in the Olympics? What did we do? We put together the dream team. What those guys do? They went over and just crushed everybody. Or do you remember the Olympics this past summer? Katie Ledecky swimming, uh, and she would just—I mean, she'd be lapping people. And we, and we, because it's just isn't it? It's just wonderful to say that's 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 my girl right there, right? She's not just winning; she's like, she's destroying people. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying there's winning, and then there's like absolutely crushing everybody. There's victory, and then there's something that's even more than victory. It's this more than conquering. And that's what Paul says is ultimately ours because of what Jesus has done. Again, the victory isn't that nothing bad ever happens to you. It's that no matter what happens to you, you don't lose your footing in God's love. And that's way better. So at the end of his great chapter on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul writes this. He says, therefore, in other words, if you really understand this stuff I'm telling you about the resurrection, therefore... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding. That is what the truth of the gospel can do in your life. It can make you those things, steadfast and immovable and abounding. Or let me just try to show you from the text what this looks like. Look down at verses 38 and 39 again. Paul says, and he's really exhaustive here, isn't he? I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me, just a couple things, if you use some of those things. That, that means a number of things. It means profound hope, not despair and death. Profound peace, not anxiety in life. Profound gratitude, not regret about the past. Profound confidence, not fear about the future. Profound humility, not pride in success. Profound security, not self-loathing and failure. If a person, a person who has all that is unstoppable, don't you see? Throw whatever you want to at them. You can't touch them. And if you have all of that, then what Paul is saying here is you won't lack for courage to keep showing up, to keep putting yourself out there. You'll have the strength that you need to refuse to give in to bitterness or self-pity. You won't try to avoid the hard parts of life. You won't shut your heart down either. You'll find that middle way, which Paul describes there in verse 36. He puts it this way. He says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's the Christian life. That's the vision statement for every Christian. That's what victory looks like. 
Right? Not, I mean, think about that. that that's, not, that's a normative experience for Christians, Paul says. Not a life free of distress and nakedness and danger. Paul says if you follow Jesus, you move towards those things, not away from them. Because not even death can cause you to feel in love. Because death ends with resurrection. So keep showing up. And trusting God when you're tempted to give in to cynicism or bitterness. Keep giving your heart away. Stay when you feel like running. Risk with love. Forgive. Don't hold a grudge because that's what Christians do. Uh, I, I've used this illustration before. I, we have this little book in our house. We pull out at, um, at Valentine's Day and read to our kids. It's this great little book. You ought to get it and have it in your home if you're a parent or a grandparent. But it's called Somebody Loves You, Mr. Hatch. It's about a sad, lonely man who goes through life doing the same thing day after day, and he's really, he's really kind of rather pathetic guy. He, you know, he has, he has like a mustard sandwiches for lunch every day, and he eats the same thing for bed, and he's all alone. He never talks to anybody. He sits alone at the work, you know, at the table at work, and so forth. And then one day he receives a heart-shaped box of chocolates in the mail and a little note that says, "Somebody loves you," and he has no idea who it's from. Uh, it doesn't really matter. He, something happens to this man. He's so energized by the, just the thought of being loved that he begins to live differently. He becomes kind and available to his neighbors. He bakes brownies and makes lemonade and throws a party in his backyard and plays harmonica and everybody comes and they dance in the backyard. And, and his life has just completely changed until the day the postman comes back. And tells him that he accidentally del delivered the heart-shaped box of chocolates to the wrong address. Yeah, it's kind of sad, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I feel so sorry for that guy. No one loves him after all. And he's so dejected that he goes right back to his old way of living. He starts eating mustard sandwiches for lunch again. And sits all alone and, and just do doesn't talk to any of his neighbors and... You know, but now that the story has a happy ending. I'll leave that to you to buy the book and read it, but that's not the point. No, no. I, it's not the point of the sermon this morning. Here's the point. <laughs> okay. The point is, uh, the point is that as he's become this person who just really uh, is energized towards love, he, he, in loving people, he really does, he really does um, create a community of people who love him. In becoming someone who loves, he, he receives love. Does that make sense? So they do love him in the end because he's become this person that they all love and they want, they want that Mr. Hatch back. The point is this. The point is that being loved is what makes the difference. Are you living loved? If you're not a Christian, if you don't know God's love, the Bible says we're not saved by behaving but by believing. Christianity is gospel, not religion, remember. So say in your heart, I believe. I believe you love me for Christ's sake. That's the prayer of faith. That's all you have to do. But I'd love to talk to you about that. But if you're a Christian and you know the love of God, but you're not living as if you're loved, then that's where your repentance starts today. If someone asks you how you're doing, can I make a suggestion? If you're, if you're a Christian, if somebody comes to you and says, how are you doing? You don't lead with how you're feeling or how it's going. You lead with the reality of God's love because no matter how you feel or how you perceive it's going, the truest thing about your life right now is that God is for you. He's given his son for you and with him everything else that you truly need. 
You are the special object of his delight. That's what's most true of you, no matter how good or bad it's going right now. And what you have to confront is that all of your anxiety and regret and ingratitude and fear about the future, you can trace it all back to gospel amnesia. You're not living love. You're forgetting Christ died for you. You're forgetting he's alive. God is for you. And so where you don't believe, you've got to go to the Holy Spirit and you've got to say, help my unbelief. Persuade me. Make me sure. It's a simple message. Christ Jesus, verse 34, is the one who died. More than that, was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Therefore, because of that great work of our Savior, who can separate us from the love of God? We are not more than conquerors because we get an easy life. We are more than conquerors by believing in the love of God come what went may because Jesus is alive. Let me say it one more time, okay? We are not more than conquerors because we get an easy life. We are more than conquerors by believing in the love of God, come what may, because Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Let's pray. So, Father, as we sing now and close our service, would you put into our heart a song of thanksgiving and praise? We confess to you the ways that we, despite all that you have done for us, the ways that we can still allow the way we're feeling or the way we perceive our life is going to be the emotional barometer, and that is unbelief. It's a great sin. And I confess the way I do that, and so I would pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Holy Spirit, come and so persuade us of the truth of the gospel, of your great love for us, that we would become people who would know the most true thing about our lives is that you have decidedly set your love upon us and it has nothing to do with us and therefore it's absolutely a certainty. No matter how I might feel in this moment, no matter what the last two or three months of my life might look like. And that should put a song of praise in our hearts and on our lips. And so we wanna honor you today by singing. So as we sing now, inhabit our praises as the Bible says gain much glory from the worship that we give to you now as we as we turn to you in repentance and faith and we pray all these things in Jesus name amen amen and so uh, we conclude our service with this benediction if what Paul is saying is true and because the grave is empty we believe it to be so then we go as a people uh, absolutely secure in the love of God for us given by that love all of the resources that we need to live, to be faithful to the calling, to the mission that he's given to us. And so receive these words of benediction. Uh, know that they are the Father's uh, words that linger over your life as you go this week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Happy Easter. Go in his peace.